Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelts, and thank you for joining me on Sunday, October 23rd, 2022, for the Russia-Ukraine War podcast. On Sundays, we have guests and we do interviews, and we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. We're with Yulia, who needs no last name because Yulia is a brand unto herself. She is the millennial voice of history for Ukraine. She works with United24 is the voice of Ukraine briefly, so you may have heard her before. And she's an independent journalist and multi-platform educator. She also just finished an interview with Aidan Aslett. He was an Azov defender, British national, who got the death sentence in a kangaroo court in the Donbass, was released in a prisoner of war exchange brokered by Saudi Arabia, and that's available on her social media channels. Yulia, after that introduction, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, David. Good to see you today in the, or hear you today (laughs) in your studio. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. There's three topics that I want to talk to you about today, because these are areas where you have great expertise, and you've done some amazing interviews with Azov Defenders, and that will be one of the topics we're going to talk about. I want to start talking about early 20th century Ukrainian history and how the Russian Federation has been spinning the legacy of history of Ukraine from about 1917 to 1940 and turning that into propaganda. A lot of people like to say that when Lenin came to Ukraine, Lenin was giving Ukraine all of this freedom to be ourselves. He was giving all of us all of this freedom to speak our language, to promote our literature. And there was a policy of Ukraine uh, of Ukrainization, so to speak, which is not entirely not true. But Ukraine was, uh, I want to say, harassed and uh, genocided and um, done a lot of incredibly horrible things to by the imperial Russia. And by that point, Lenin and the Bolsheviks took over Ukraine against Ukraine's will and uh, kind of merged Ukraine to this union that they had created. Uh, At that point in time, there was a lot of Ukrainian nationalistic movements. There were a lot of people who just, who were so happy that the imperial Russia had fallen apart. And we now have, you know, the ability to be ourselves and do our own thing. And here is this man who comes in and goes, yeah, you can do your own thing, but under my control though. And so Ukraine was once again imprisoned into Russian authorities uh, with just basically the same rules, but a different name. When Lenin was starting to deteriorate, one of the things that he told his inner circle was, you can't let this guy Stalin get into power. Stalin is bad news. And Stalin got into power and things really started to go downhill for Ukraine when that happened. Well, yes. So the policy of Ukrainization was uh, substituted with the policy of Russification because, well, um, sort of like, let me backtrack here a little bit. The only reason Ukraine was given the Ukrainization policy is because we were the pain in Russia's ass, pardon my French, the entire time of their reign. Ukrainian people have been free. Ukrainian people have been uh, liberty wanting and Ukrainian people have been rebelous since our basic conception, right? We never let anybody rule us. We never let anybody tell us what to do. So 
when Lenin wanted to remain in power, one thing that he had to do is give us the semblance of having our own, of having our own kind of authority over ourselves. And one of the reasons I think he was saying that because Stalin is a your book type dictator. Stalin for Ukraine was what Hitler was for Jews. Stalin implemented the policy of Russification in Ukraine. Stalin committed uh, multiples of genocides in Ukraine. A lot of people have heard about Holodomor, but what people don't know is that it wasn't just one Holodomor. It was three Holodomors in the 20s, in the 30s, and in the 40s. In the 30s, it was the biggest one. And combined, based on the latest study from the Museum of Holodomor in 2019, 10.5 million Ukrainians died from Holodomor and its consequences and diseases that were related to it. And that was the doing of Stalin himself. Stalin ordered it. Stalin supervised it. It was deliberate. For us, Stalin was a genocide. For us, Russia was a genocide. And for us, the Soviet Union was basic. And they wanted to kill us off. They wanted to destroy Ukraine and everything Ukrainian. When you say Russification, can you explain to our audience, what are the pillars of Russification? The pillars of Russification is killing off of Ukrainian population that speaks Ukrainian and substitution of that population with Russians from rem remote areas of Russian who come in and they start speaking Russian and they popularize the Russian language. It also means that uh, you can't speak Ukrainian anymore in schools. All of the books are now written in Russian. You can't write poems in Ukrainian. You can't, you can't refer to Ukrainian history as its own history. You have to blend it within Russian history and you have to sign off all of the accomplishments of Ukrainian history to the big grand old Soviet Union history. You cannot use Ukrainian symbolism. Uh, you cannot use Ukrainian traditions. Everything about you that is Ukrainian cannot be done in public and cannot be done on record because you are simply going to be murdered. That is the policy of Russification. Russification wasn't just limited to Ukraine when Stalin was in power. Yeah, Russification was also uh, was also perpetuated to Kazakhstan, to Lithuania, to Latvia, to Georgia, to Armenia. Like one of the, you know, one of the biggest things that people actually don't know is that the real name of Georgia is Sekartvelo. And the only reason that we translate it as Georgia is because it's Gruzia in Russian, but they're Sekartvele. And <laughs> that's their real name. And that is Russification right there. Armenia is not Armenia or Armenia, it's Gayastan. But the reason why we translate it into English, like Armenia, is because Russians called it Armenia. That's the same reason why we call Kyiv Kyiv and why we call uh, Kharkiv Kharkov and why we call Mykolaiv Nikolaev, even though those are Ukrainian cities with Ukrainian names. Can you talk a little bit more about Holodomor? Uh, so Holodomor was uh, the biggest part of it was in 1931, 1932, where villagers, the local farmers everywhere around Ukraine, their crops were taken away from them and they were given unrealistic standards of production. And if they didn't fulfill those super unrealistic standards of, of production, I mean like three to four times of what they could actually like physically do, right? Their crops would be taken away from them. So, uh, their movement was restricted. So if you wanted to go to a neighboring village, and you wanted to get food or you wanted to like, I don't know, trade with someone or you wanted to move to a city or you wanted to do something, you couldn't do it because there was a physical army preventing you from doing so. And so these people were starved. They were starved and they were all, uh, if you look at the photos from that time, it's like children are all anorexic. They're all skin and bones. Their stomachs are all bloated because once you get to the point at which your body is just giving up on itself, your organs start blowing up. 10.5 million people
people that it happened to. And a lot of people like to minimize the effects of Holodomor because they say, oh, but I've seen the number from one to seven million. I've seen the number of like 500,000. I've seen the number of four million. Well, the thing is, we're never going to know how many people died because a lot of research and a lot of people like to take in the number of people who purely starved to death. But they don't take in the people who were never born, people who were uh, had all of these diseases that result, resulted from them star- being starved. They don't take any of the things that kind of come out from that. They don't take the number of suicides from people who killed themselves because they were starving and they didn't know what to do anymore. So it is a huge, huge, grand encompassing genocide of people. And every Ukrainian family, every Ukrainian person you will ask will have a story from their grandmother or great grandmother who in your childhood, when you didn't want to eat something, would tell you something uh, along the lines of, oh, you don't like this? Well, my mom had to eat soil to survive and you over here are going to be, you know, are going to be picky about your food. And that's a normal, that's like a normal Ukrainian grandma thing to say. One thing I always like to interject whenever we talk about suicide, because it is a very sensitive topic. If you are feeling distraught, if you are feeling hopeless, there is help for you available. In the United States, you can call 988 24 hours a day. I say that as somebody who is a survivor. Let's move back to the conversation. We have Holomador 1930s. Millions of people are killed. Then you have the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, where Stalin helps the Nazis in Germany invade Poland. There's up to 1.5 million people, mostly ethnic Jews, which are deported by the Soviets from eastern Poland to Siberia. And you have the German invasion, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. And one of the first countries, one of the first territories on the way is Ukraine. Let's get to the root of our conversation here. How, what happened from 1931 to 1940, 41 has been politicized and turned into Russian propaganda. So basically, there was an ongoing genocide of the Ukrainian population done by Stalin and the Soviet authorities, dealing with the Nazis of our own, and that was the Soviet Union. And they have been committing a genocide of the Ukrainian population for a decade at that point. The actual Nazis came into Ukraine. It was at that point the least of our problems. <laughs> At that point, World War II and the German invasion was to us. This cannot be any worse than what already has been happening, right? So they actually had very much the same policies. The Soviet Union helped Germany in their extermination of the Jewish population. And I chose that word carefully. I think that that's exactly what it was. And the Soviet Union was incredibly anti-Semitic as well. And so to me, as a Ukrainian, as a Ukrainian, when people try to glorify the Soviet Union for combating the Nazi invasion, it's incredibly uh, like bitter funny because they were exactly the same. Within just a few months of Nazi occupation, the Ukrainian people figured out that they basically went from the frying pan to the fire. They came into Ukraine and they occupied Ukraine. They did not get to Russia at, at first, right? So we took the majority of the flank of that invasion. And at that point, uh, we were inv- we were dealing with Poland. We were dealing with the Polish invasion. We were dealing with the, uh, we, with the German invasion. We were dealing with the Russian invasion. And we kind of thought that when Germans were going to come over, Germans are here to destroy the USSR, right? So they can't be any worse than the USSR. And we are kind of g- going to let them do what they 
were going to do to the USSR and we are just going to go from there. Then we realized the Germans are just as bad as the USSR. We had our own insurgents armies that were organizing at that point in Ukraine that were fighting both the Soviet invasion, the German invasion and the Polish invasion. And one of the people that has been highly politicized by modern Russian propaganda, by USSR propaganda is Stepan Bandera. Now, Stepan Bandera was a leader of the Ukrainian resistance against the Soviet Union, first and foremost. He is proven to have collaborated with Nazi Germany. People don't look into the context of that, and Russia just takes it, and it's it's a perfect cake. We have this Ukrainian guy. He was pro-Ukrainian. He was anti-Russian, and he collaborated with the Nazis. He is horrible, right? Wrong. I'm not here to salvage his reputation because I'm going to say that he is just the same as every other military commander who is trying to fight his cause. Now, Stepan Bandera's goal was to keep Ukraine independent, to preserve Ukrainian culture after genocides upon genocides upon genocides that we have already faced. His idea was to, quote unquote, collaborate with the Nazis, get all of their information on the Soviet Union so we in Ukraine could get the Soviet Union out of Ukraine and then basically drop the Nazis. The Nazis were giving out orders against the Soviet Union and then they were also giving out orders against the Jews. It is historically documented for everybody who says that Stepan Bandera and his Ukrainian insurgents army were actually anti-Semitic and they were German collaborators. If you look into history, it's proven that they were terrible at fulfilling the orders from coming from the Nazis that concerned the Jewish population, but they were very good at fulfilling the Red Army targets. And that's basically the only reason that they, quote unquote, collaborated to get the information in Soviet Union. Then when the Nazis found out that they have actually zero desire to join Germany in their uh, conquest and to become part of Germany and realized that this was all done in order to free Ukraine and in order to be dependent, they threw Stepan Bandera and all of the people with him into concentration camps in Germany. There's something that you said that I think is a very important distinction. When when people look at World War II history and they think of the German invasion, everything that gets the attention is Leningrad, Stalingrad, how the Germans were stopped within sight of Moscow. But historically, most of the fighting and most of the bloodshed did happen in Belarus and Ukraine. This happened in both directions, when the Germans were advancing, and then when the Germans were defeated outside of Moscow, Leningrad, and Stalingrad, and were treating. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Thank you for providing the insight how Russia is using Ukraine's history against it in the propaganda space. You've had an opportunity to interview some amazing people. Um, Aidan Aslan is, of course, a household name around the world. He was a sworn member of the 36th Separate Marine Brigade of the Armed Forces of Ukraine since 2018. He surrendered in Mariupol. Uh, He was tried in a kangaroo court in a show trial in the Donbass and given the death penalty for being an illegal combatant and a terrorist. The Western world was, if you execute him as a member of the Ukrainian armed forces, you will be committing an unspeakable war crime. And he was recently released by a Saudi Arabian brokered POW exchange. 
You also had an opportunity to interview Azov Regiment service person who goes by the call sign of Torque, and he was an Azov defender. Why don't you tell us about that interview and his incredible story? Torque is a serviceman of the Azov Regiment. He has been serving there for five years now, and he was born and raised in Mariupol, actually. So he is a native of Mariupol. He stood on the defense of Mariupol, and he was encircled in one of the two encirclements. He was one of the many uh, armed forces of Ukraine servicemen who had to break through to Azovstal in order to be able to save their lives and in order to continue defending Mariupol. He talks about his experience breaking through and all of the atrocities that had happened on the way. And honestly, after listening to it, I firmly believe that he's the luckiest man alive because the amount of times that he nearly escaped death by pure luck is incredible. We have a clip of that interview. I'm going to go ahead and play about a one-minute piece. The defense was very strong for a very long time. Everything was good. With time, obviously, we've located some weaknesses in some directions. For instance, in the aviation department. We didn't have any resistance. We didn't have any APS, and therefore an airplane felt right at home. And so, slowly but surely, they kept pushing. And you also got to understand that we, for instance, had our marine units, our anti-tank units, and some sort of mortar somewhere, maybe one or two. Our enemy had 155mm artillery, tank, and all of that I can say in safely unlimited quantities. And so they could afford to do anything. We had to get very creative in order to somehow slow them down. There wasn't anything like surviving. <laughs> Survive maybe became a thing in Azovstal when everybody was cooped up there, but urban warfare was full-fledged defense, because outside of just defending yourself, you had to quite literally handhold civilians through it. The people who had it worst, they couldn't understand why they were being fired at. We would literally be passing by and see a burning house, and some old lady runs out of it in tears, screaming, why are they shilling us? Uh, what are we supposed to say to her? Because it's the Russian world, the same Russian world that is leveling the city to the ground as we speak? Truly amazing. Yulia, tell us a little bit more. He made it from uh, from there on. He was in Azovstal. He was in Azovstal for about a month, and then he was extracted. That's the word that, that Ukrainian servicemen prefer to use when they talk about the uh, extraction of them from Azovstal into Russian captivity. And he spent about a month in Russian captivity until he was exchanged back in about July. And now he's back home in Ukraine. And uh, we had a conversation about a lot of different things. He explained to me what Russians considered to be Nazi tattoos. That's something that they love to refer to when they talk about Azov Regiment. He explained uh, to me a lot about what was happening in captivity, what was happening in Azov style, what was happening in Mariupol. It's a very all-encompassing five-part experience that lets you understand not only what happened in that hell, but also who your average Azov serviceman is and who is your average guy who decided to give their life to serving the armed forces of Ukraine and the National Guard in the unit of Azov Y they did that and what were their dreams and expectations before and what they are now. When people hear Azov Battalion or Azov Regiment, a lot of people know it as Azov Battalion. They immediately, even people, supporters of Ukraine are like, ooh, ick, aren't they kind of Nazis? Let's talk about that and what they what they are today. So one of the things that I'm going to start off with here is um, 
language. Language about Azov regiment is incredibly important. What I've been noticing is that even the people who now support Azov understand that they're heroes, understand that they are just very professional military unit, they still call them members of the Azov regiment. And I want to draw a parallel here. Azov to Ukraine is what the Navy SEALs are to the United States. It's a highly, highly motivated, very combat-ready, professional elite unit of the National Guard of Ukraine. It is not just a separate organization. It's not a sect. It's not a cult. You can't be a member. You're a serviceman of the National Guard of Ukraine, or you are in the regiment Azov, but you are not a member. The way that Azov was formed in 2014 was a pure reaction to the Russian invasion. Most of the people that served in Azov when it was not a um, legal unit of the military, but was just sort of armed militia, were the guys from the cities that have been occupied by Russia. And they understood that our military was incredibly weak, that they could not counter the Russian invasion, that they could not do anything about it. So they sort of took the matters into their own hands organized and combated the Russian invasion. What people actually don't know is a lot of them are from Mariupol and a lot of them are from Kherson. And the only reason that Russia wasn't able to take over Kherson and Mariupol in 2014 is largely due to the guys from the regiment Azov. Russia really likes to take to take them and portray them as Nazis with no context. Obviously, same that happened to Stepan Bandera. There is always context to things and we can't just take them at face value, especially when you're introduced with that, to them through the lens of Russian media, which is exactly what happened to the West. We got introduced to Azov through the lens of Russian media. Tork actually talks a lot about it in uh, the interview. And I very often get asked like, oh, what's the political leaning of Azov? What's the religion in Azov? When you ask that question, ask yourself, what's the political leaning of the Navy SEALs? What's the religion in the Navy SEALs? It depends on every individual member that you ask, right? Because these are people who serve in the military. And the guy who created the regiment Azov, I'm not even going to say he created the regiment. I'm going to say that he had the most leadership skills out of every single guy who decided to volunteer to protect their city. And he basically ended up organizing them. Had very far right leanings. And we are very much aware of that. I'm not, again, I'm not here to salvage his reputation. There is nothing to salvage, right? Mm -hmm, But just mm -hmm. because he had those leanings doesn't mean that he created an quote unquote organization to act on those leanings. He just happened to be the wrong person at the wrong time with the right leadership skills. And he ended up organizing a reaction to Russian resistance. And he then was taken by Russian propaganda and made into a beacon of this Nazi white supremacist militia. But from the creation of Azov, a lot of the servicemen there were Jewish, some were Muslim. It was guys of every background that cared about Donbass, that cared about their cities near Donbass, that cared about Ukraine staying Ukraine. That was their only goal. One of the things that I was... I have to use the word amused, is Russia today during the siege of Mariupol ran a story in late March where they were interviewing somebody. And that person claimed that only the enlisted in the Azov regiment have Nazi tattoos. None of the sergeants are above due or the officers. And my first thought to this was, if you get promoted, do you get laser tattoo removal as part of your promotion? And I just, and I'm like, who believes this stuff? And unfortunately, a lot of people believe this stuff. 
Well, first of all, one of the easiest counters that I want to give to that, right, is Russia didn't necessarily decide whether they're white supremacist, whether they're Nazis, or whether they're fascists, right? They call them all of these things interchangeably. So they're all of it, right? So one of the things that I want to say, now that they're a full-fledged military battalion within the National Guard of Ukraine, they take direct orders from their commander-in-chief, who's the Ukrainian president, who is a Jew. And Azov Regiment in general, you know, a lot of the servicemen are Jewish, a lot are Muslim, a lot are pagan, a lot are Christian, a lot are Catholic. It's a military regiment. This argument to me is so funny and so silly because it makes no sense. Something that happened in the Russian information space is there were two releases of Azov Defenders. There's the first release. We'll talk a little bit about that. We talk about Torque in uh, June. And then there was this second release, which included the commanders in September. And there was outrage in Russian state media and the mill blogger space in the social media space. Wait a minute. I thought we were fighting Nazis and these guys were Nazis and you just released a bunch of Nazis. And the Kremlin has changed its message. They've really dropped the Nazi message. The Nazi message has shifted now. If you're against Russia, you're a Nazi. It just doesn't matter. We're going to peanut butter that everywhere. And the new message is we're fighting against Satanists and gay people. Oh, my God. Yes, uh, they they really have changed that message. And it's incredible. That also is incredibly funny to me because now they have taken all of the pagan tattoos from Ukrainian defenders who are servicemen of the Azov, and they have turned them into these satanistic things. So there is an Azov regiment serviceman by the call name Himik, which means the chemist, and his name is David Kasatkin, and you have 100% seen him surrendering into the Russian captivity where Russians took his pants down and made him take his shirt off, and that revealed an incredible amount of tattoos. Some of them say death to you. Some of them say time to kill. Some of them have a pagan goat on his back. And Russians were like, oh my God, gold mine, Ukrainian Nazi Satanist. And here we caught him. His call name is Chemik. We we're going to say that he was cooking meth for the Azov regiment. And this is how it all happened. Oh, yay. And this was their best selling point. And when they exchanged him, particularly, honestly, my jaw dropped because this was this was like the, I was so surprised, you know, I was surprised about everybody that they released to begin with. And I firmly now believe that they released all of the quote unquote famous names just so people stop advocating for POWs because everybody they know, knew and related to is now free. But when they released him, I was like, oh my God, what really, really struck me as very funny when they said that Chemik was cooking meth and other drugs, which is why they called him chemist for Azov <laughs> Regiment is that one of the only and when you say that you be the Russians, not the just oh. to clarify, right? Oh, yeah, the Russians, yes. Yeah, let, let's well, clarify that. There is no religion in Azov, right? There is no political leaning in Azov, but there is one thing in Azov that is very strict and has no exceptions, and that is no alcohol, no drug use, no cigarette smoking, and they're all athletic people who have to keep fit. The Red Cross, Russian government, Ukrainian government, and the UN brokered this exchange, which blew apart within hours of this exchange deal being done. And the Red Cross has dropped its ball. Um, for our subscribers, if uh, you're on our Patreon, by the way, you can join our Patreon for just $5 a month to get access to our situation reports. Uh, we highlighted in this past week on how the International Committee of the Red Cross has completely dropped the ball 
uh, in observing and protecting prisoners of war, which is a core part of their charter. The first group that was removed were the most critically injured. There was Western media there. There was Russian media there. They were allowed to follow the buses to the hospitals and see what we're doing. And we're taking them off the buses. And then we didn't hear anything after that. Let's talk about Torque's experience from this. So you're going to hear it in the interview if you choose to watch it on my YouTube channel. There are, as I mentioned prior, five parts, and they're all broken down onto different experiences. One is why he joined Azov. Two is Mariupol and his journey to Azovstal. Three is a little bit more on life in the bunker than Russian captivity. And then, well, a surprise part that you'll find out what it's about. But I will tell you, he addresses the Russian population at the end of it. And so he said, and the majority of the guys that were in Russian captivity that I heard from that were extracted from Azovstal, they have never seen the Red Cross. They have never seen the UN. Part of the reason why they decided to uh, surrender into Russian captivity rather than die was because uh, this deal was brokered by the UN. The UN guaranteed their security. The Red Cross guaranteed their security. They were told that once they would be Uh, Once they would be basically extracted, they would have a phone call to their families and that they would be they would fill out the paperwork and that all of this is going to be done under the UN and Red Cross observation and they're guaranteeing their security. The experience was such as they did not see the Red Cross anywhere. Neither did they see UN. They did not fill out any paperwork. Torque found out about the paperwork after he had been released back onto the Ukrainian controlled land. And he was like, what? He was like, I I have no idea. You know, I've donated to Red Cross as a kid. And now I'm wondering where did that money go? And he was saying that basically he wasn't offered a phone call, but some of his friends were offered a phone call. They were offered to give those representatives the names of their family members that they want to call their addresses and their phone numbers. And then they would come back to them the next day in order for them to establish a connection. And I know that uh, Aiden Aslan, because he uh, shared this on a social media channel after coming out of captivity, he would be offered phone calls and handed a phone metaphorically connected to a car battery that just elicited a massive shock um, when he went to grab the phone. And again, I say metaphorically a car battery. What it was is a Russian uh, field phone that had been apparently you can easily alter some of these to turn them essentially into a torture device. Yeah, well, Aiden was also saying that, and you will find this out in the part two of the interview when we get into sort of his story of how he was able to connect to his family, He everything that he was doing was highly televised and everything that he was doing was made into a circus because he already had online following and the Russians knew that he is a great tool for their propaganda because not only is he a foreigner, he can also be painted as a mercenary. Meanwhile, he's actually getting Ukrainian citizenship soon. When did Torque realize it was for real? I'm going home he realized that when he was already in Ukraine, because he was, uh, there were a couple of exchanges that were supposed to be done. And every single time they, they didn't go through, they were put in buses then they were brought back then they were put in buses then they were brought back. And so this time they were put in a bus and he was like, okay, well, I'm either going to go home or I'm going to die. When he heard Ukrainian voices and when he understood that he's on the territory of Ukraine, he was like, oh my God, I, I'm not going to (laughs) die. Like I am being exchanged. I'm home. He could, he, part of him was like, couldn't believe it really. How is his recovery going? 
So his recovery is actually going pretty decent. We actually fundraised yesterday on getting him a Theragun and, you know, uh, convincing Torque that uh, he needs something that would help him and his and his recovery or really anything that has to do with him has to be like a battle between me and him and me basically convincing him to stop being Mr. Humble and accept the help. But he is right now in a Kyiv facility for rehabilitation and he was uh, in a different facility in Western Ukraine before that. He is missing a part of the muscle in his leg. Some of his his muscles are atrophied, some of them are contused, and some of the nerves are incredibly damaged. His recovery is going to be years and years, and as his doctor said, his leg is never going to go back to factory settings. And his leg was supposed to be amputated, but last minute they decided to save it. Uh, one of the things that is really stressing him out is that, as I said prior, he is a, a native of Mariupol. He was born and raised there. His entire family was there. His family is his dog, his fiance, his mom, and his grandmother. During uh, and they were in Mariupol during the entire duration of the siege and his mom and grandma uh, were in a basement. The grandma received a wound and gangrene that developed. And so her leg had to be amputated. They now live in a house somewhere very deep in like a village of Ukraine in a different oblast and they live with their relatives, but they have no money no house, no anything. They lost everything in Mariupol. And Torque right now is trying to figure out how to get them an apartment because it's very hard to do through the government because, well, we have to restore the entirety of our country first. We've heard this from other people that we've interviewed that have worked with POWs, the humbleness. And I'm good. I don't need any help. I'm good. The reality is they need a ton of help. If someone's listening to this and they wanted to help Torque, how could they do that? So I managed to get uh, Torx PayPal out of him so you could do it easily straight by donating to him. And I mean, I had to uh, do a complex special operation in order to get that PayPal out of him. Because when I say <laughs> the man is humble, the man is really humble. He could be sitting in a trench naked and I could be asking him if he needs armor and he would say, no, I'm good. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Don't don't stress about it. So his PayPal is al.tork only like one and only first f-i-r-s-t at gmail.com and that is his straight paypal his uh, real name is alexander or alexander the way americans would say it that's that's how you can donate to him and uh i would be very very grateful he would be very very grateful he might you know he might scream and scream at me for <laughs> for for actually going through with helping him but you know i'll take it it's fine <laughs> if you're listening to this right now you're going wait 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 what was that again i gotta grab don't worry about it it's in the description of the podcast and not all podcast services parse the full description so if you're listening to us on one of the podcast providers that doesn't provide the full description you can always go to russia ukraine war podcast.com and you will find the complete description to the podcast there and the link to Torx PayPal. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. We're continuing our conversation with the amazing Yulia and picking her brain on Ukrainian history and the amazing interviews that she has done. We're going to talk about our third topic now, which is the Donbass and the history of it. And, and we're going to start that by playing a piece that she did for United 24 that explains the history of the Donbass in 90 seconds or less. 
What is Donbass? Easy. It's part of Ukraine. Donbass means Donetsk coal basin. It roughly spreads over two eastern regions, Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. Previously, Donbass was mainly inhabited by nomads, but in the 16th century, Cossacks built fortresses on the site of Mariupol and Slovensk. They ruled the territory until the Russian Empire seized it in the 18th century. Donbass is the land of mineral resources, therefore in the 19th century it became the land of foreign investments. So in the 1869, British industrialist John Hughes founded Donetsk. In April 1918, in the struggle for independence, Ukrainians liberated the region from the Bolsheviks. Unfortunately, not for long. People from all over the USSR were working on bus, but the region was mostly populated by Ukrainians, so the USSR systematically Russified it. As part of independent Ukraine, Donetsk hosted Euro 2012 matches at one of the best airports and stadiums in Eastern Europe. When the so-called DPR and LPR were proclaimed here in 2014, thousands of Donbass residents protested, but the armed Russian units proved to be stronger and occupied the territories. Russia believed that it could do this to all of Ukraine, but Ukrainians have other plans. Excellent as always. Historically, the Donbass was the industrial center of Ukraine. The Soviet Union relied very heavily on this industrial center during the Cold War because of coal, uranium, and steel production. The wheels started falling off the metaphorical bus in the 1970s. Well, the Soviet Union was going broke. One of the things that people don't realize is that, first of all, Gorbachev didn't set the republics free, and Gorbachev didn't have any other choice because the Soviet Union Union was broke. It was so behind on its never-ending race with the United States. It needed foreign investments. Uh, all of the inter- industries were dying. Some of the things were getting mechanized, but the Soviet Union didn't have the money to mechanize it. It was like a, a big, grand, old, chaotic mess. And a lot of people were suffering from it. A lot of people were moved from Russia to Donbass to Russify it, as we have heard in the clip. And a lot of those people were losing their jobs. They were losing income. They were getting angry. So when Ukraine in 1991 was becoming independent, Donbass and the eastern regions of Ukraine voted overwhelmingly for it. And they wanted it to become a prosperous area again, because it's so rich in mineral resources, it's so rich in a lot of production, and it's always been the industrial hub of Ukraine. And that's exactly what Ukraine has been doing. And in uh, 2012, 2011, like that time frame, Donbass started blooming again. There was a lot of work, a lot of blue collar work, and there was a lot of opportunity for investment from incredibly wealthy people. And that's kind of where all of the seed of discourse originates. Donbass is Donetsk, coal basin, not Donetsk, Donetsk, like the river, Donetsk, coal basin, Donetsk, Basin, so Donbass. Basin is basin. Donbass roughly consists of Donetsk Oblast and Luhansk Oblast in its entirety, some regions of Kharkiv and some regions of Zaporizhia, and, and I mean, Mariupol people are going to disagree with this one, but <laughs> it's also the city of Mariupol. Basically, everything that falls under the coal basin is Donbass. Mariupol technically is Preazovia, so the borderland to the Azov Sea, but it is internationally included in that area as well. Mm-hmm. So in Donbass, a lot of people had blue collar jobs. They were not paid very well. It's a no strange topic to everyone everywhere in the world who works these jobs. You are overworked and you are underpaid. And so there were a lot of health issues. There was a lot of work. There was very little pay. And there was Russian TV. And those were the various Russian propaganda channels. And they figured, where do we hit these people in order to gain those regions? Huh, we're going to hit them where it hurts. So we're going to tell them that you are working really, really hard and you are basically supplying 
all of the money to Ukraine as a country, and Ukraine in turn does not give you anything. Look at you. You are overworked. You work super long shifts. You don't have time for your family. You come home, you drink vodka, and you're basically living this life. And you are supposed to make so much more money, and Russia is going to give it to you because right now, what is happening is you're doing all the work, and all of those Ukrainians in the West, who by the way, hate you for speaking Russian, you know, those Ukrainians speaking Ukrainians, the Nazis, they, they are the ones who are making all the money and they're the ones who are getting all of the profits and all of the benefits from your hard work in the coal mine. So then Russia decided to employ Russians that they started sending into Donetsk and Luhansk in order to start basically spreading this narrative among the coal miners. They were paying these coal miners to spread that narrative to their friends, targeted the people with very hard jobs with very little income who were an easy target because they were offering them the money they've never seen to brainwash everybody else into this narrative. And they succeeded. They brainwashed about 1% to 2% of the population of uh, Donbass into believing that their life is going to be good under Russia. But here's the thing. A lot of people call it a civil war in 2014. To be a civil war, it had to have had the roots in in two populations of Ukraine, right? It had the roots in Russia coming in and brainwashing people. And this was not even a thing before 2014. No one was saying that they wanted to be a part of Russia. No one was really advocating for it. It was a a deliberate, I want to call it, special operation. And it was semi-successful, not as successful as they planned because most of the population of Donbass fled. And you can see that in numbers. So you can't say that the majority of the people in these areas wanted to be Russia because the majority of the people from these areas fled and have been replaced by Russians. And that goes back to 2014 when all of the violence and combat started in those regions. It does, because what you also might not be realizing is that the majority of the people who fought on the front line in Donetsk were the people from Donetsk and the majority of the people who fought on the front line of Luhansk were the people from Luhansk. Those same people that fled basically joined the armed forces and went full force to protect their cities and return them from occupation. One of the things that you and I were talking about before we went into the studio, all the way until late June, people within the Politico of Luhansk People's Republic, Donetsk People's Republic, were saying, we don't necessarily want to be part of Russia. We want to be our independent state of the Luhansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic. And you even had people like Igor Gurkin Strokov, who I guess you could call a Russian propagandist and is a war criminal. And it's a separate podcast to dive into his whole messy history. But even he was saying up to late June, these regions becoming part of Russia is not a win. That wasn't the intent here. The intent here was these breakaway republics to be recognized. And in the face of military hopelessness, with the first army corps and the second army corps destroyed, they're like, all right, um, we'll do the sham referendum and mother Russia, I guess. Yeah, that's actually very interesting because they've had Russian passports since the beginning of this. They've had Russian passports since 2014. So the funny uh, kind of the phenomena that we are observing right now is I'm hearing from a lot of people who have relatives in Donetsk and Luhansk who have stayed in these occupied territories, whether they either because they couldn't move due to health reasons or due to someone that they had to take care of who couldn't move for health reasons or because they thought they didn't have money to move or that was scary or it was their land and they weren't willing to leave it or because they believed the Russian propaganda, right? They are now starting to wake up, especially the people who believe the Russian propaganda, who thought that they're going to be this, you know, separate, prosperous republic of coal mining are now waking up and thinking, wait, 
no one really cares about us. The quality of water purification, food, the prices, they're out of the wazoo. And now we're having this referendum to join Russia. For the past eight years, we have been hearing about Ukraine bombing our cities and bombing our land, but we haven't actually been seeing that. But now we are having all of these hits onto the Donetsk infrastructure coming from Russia. One of the things that Russia did that didn't get a lot of coverage, we covered it, they flooded all of the coal mines in Luhansk. And uh, Sergei Haidai, who is the Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, said it will be very unlikely that these coal mines will ever be able to be restored back into service. Yeah. And so effectively, Russia is purposely ruining all of the infrastructure of of these regions, one, for Ukraine to not be able to use them again, and two, for those regions to not be able to survive without Russia. And it's very evident that it's partly a genocide of the Ukrainian population and partly a very, very um, well thought out, poorly executed scheme of just breaking the population. One of the things that you had talked about is the discussions of people in the occupied territories, even people that were in favor of this occupation. Attacks on cities like Donetsk and Marinka uh, have been launched by Russian troops. And when all of this was starting, when they started this big push on Evdivka in July, there would be reports where people in Marinka would go, they just fired MLRS, multiple multiple launch rocket systems here in Marinka, but they were shooting south. They weren't shooting west. And then like two minutes later, people in Donetsk were on social media going, there's just been a bunch of explosions in the city and those rockets came from the north. And then the administrators of these telegram channels and VK channels and live journal channels just started deleting all of the conversations. Yeah, because they didn't want the people to understand that Russia is launching those strikes. Have you seen Donetsk and how it looked like in the beginning of 2022? It was spotless. Word. I noticed even going into July and August, I would see videos and pictures uh, on the Simply Donetsk Telegram channel, which is just prolific in the amount of content that they share. It just looks like any Western European city. We've been talking with Yulia. You can find her on United 24. She is the voice of Ukraine. Briefly, Yulia, go ahead. Why don't you let people know about your other social media channels? I am on a lot of social medias, actually, and I'm very active on all of them. I am on TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, and I also have a Patreon. If you would like to support my activity as an independent journalist, I am under the same handle on all of them. If you go on a social media and you look up Y-E-W-L-E-E-A, Yulia, and you can't find me, I'm not there (laughs) because... I made it incredibly easy, and I do a two-hour news broadcast every day on YouTube, Twitch, on Twitter, on TikTok, and and to top that off, I have interviews with a lot of notable Ukrainians on my YouTube, as was mentioned before by David. It's Aiden Aslan. It's Torque. I'm also releasing an interview next week with someone who lived in Kherson occupation for a for a couple of months, and on TikTok. I release daily videos, basically talking about all of the important matters in under a minute. And on Twitter, you know, I give a lot of unhinged commentary about everything that's happening. (laughs) (laughs) It is interesting how the different channels are used differently and we use them in a different space. Yulia, thank you so much for your time and sharing all of this insight with us. We really appreciate you coming onto the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. I am uh, very, very happy that I had the opportunity to talk a little bit about a little bit of what I know <laughs> on Malcontent News. My name, once again, is David Obelts. Thank you for listening today on Sunday when I take the microphone. We are working on our next guest for next Sunday. And as I always like to end these podcasts, be good to each other. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.